0: invite you to Acts chapter 10 as we continue our series through Acts. We'll be looking first at this 10th chapter of Acts. There are times when God seems intolerably slow. Then there are times when he moves much faster than we want him to. There are times when you want to scream, God, do something now, please. And times when you want to plead, God, please let me off this bus. You're driving way faster than I care to travel. These responses we understand, we know of them on an individual basis. But they have also marked the relationship between God's corporate people through the centuries and their Lord. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, God shifts His salvation program into a gear that is way faster than the Jewish followers of Jesus find comfortable. In chapter 10, we have the vision to the Gentile Cornelius, remembering there in verse 5 that he is told to send a men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter, lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the seaside. He's to contact this man to bring him to Caesarea, and the Apostle Peter, we remember, falls into a trance at verse 11, sees the heavens opened, this great sheet descending, all of these animals upon this sheet. He's told to rise, kill, and eat, but Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice comes back a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times until the sheet is taken back up into heaven. Now remember the context here, Mosaic law, God's chosen people, God's law and covenant with Israel. There are certain food responsibilities, certain food taboos. And Peter religiously honored these food restrictions in order to pursue a life of holiness in faithfulness to God. And right about now, God is moving way faster than Peter really appreciates. But God is driving this bus, and so Peter dutifully rides on. We read further in chapter 10 that Peter's travels take him up to Cornelius' home, and Cornelius explains in verse 33, Therefore we all are here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This Gentile open to the message that Peter has to deliver. Just keep that in the back of your mind. And Peter delivers that message in verses 34 through 43. Delivers the message of Jesus Christ crucified to pay the penalty of sin and risen from the dead. Salvation in his name is proclaimed. Then, at verse 44, we find that while he's still saying these things, the Holy Spirit falls on those who heard the word. A phenomenal response, a dramatic evidence of God's grace among the Gentiles, and Peter then is asked to remain with these Gentiles for some days, and he accepts the invitation. As we come into chapter 11, we must take to heart Peter staying with these Gentiles. Now Jesus, you remember, he ate with tax collectors and sinners, and it scandalized the religious leadership. But they were Jewish Gentiles and sinners. Peter's really ratcheted the thing up here, he's eating with Gentiles. Gentiles are seen and are indeed people outside God's covenant community. And to eat with a Gentile then was to have table fellowship, which in that day particularly was to draw you in close communion with someone who was an enemy of God. Eating with the enemy. This is what Peter has done. Word of Peter's fellowship with Gentiles reaches Jerusalem, and they are not too happy about it. At least some there. God was pushing them way outside their comfort zones, and they're going to push back. So we come to the first 18 verses of this chapter. We see the church at Jerusalem receiving word of Gentile conversion. How do they receive it? First, the reaction to Peter's evangelism of the Gentiles in the first three verses. Verse 1, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Perhaps some of these six men that had traveled with Peter went down ahead of him, began to spread the word. We're not really sure, but in any event, The message goes from Caesarea and finds its way south to Jerusalem. In verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So Peter makes his way south and upwards in elevation to Jerusalem. And he receives here a very different uh, reception, doesn't he? The Gentiles are, here we are, ears open, tell us what you have to say. How do these Jewish believers receive him? Kind of arms crossed, and you better explain yourself, Peter. They criticized him. The Greek text says, they literally, they continued to dispute with him. They were unhappy with Peter, and they let him know about it. It strikes us as rather odd, doesn't it? First of all, because, let's admit it, we're Gentiles, and why would anybody have a problem with us? But verse 1, it says that the Gentiles had received the Word of God. You would expect rejoicing. They're not there yet. God's moving way faster than they are. So they're acknowledging that the message of Jesus has been received, but these chaps were so steeped in their old taboos they could not get over Peter eating with Gentiles. You have been eating with the enemy. You may proclaim Christ to them. We're not so sure about that. But to go into their home and eat with them, you're eating with the enemy. Now who are these of the circumcision party? To be fair with the text, it's really not that specific. The Greek text reads, they continued, it reads that they are of the circumcision. They are of the circumcision. So as we ask who they are, We have to fill in the blanks as to who that is. Some would say that of the circumcision means any Jew that's a Christian. But I think the ESV has it right here that they are not Jewish Christians generally, but a distinguishable group that is rising up within the Jerusalem church. A group that was uniquely zealous in their insistence that the old covenant that God established with Israel was the portal through which every Gentile must pass. You must become first a Jew, and then enter into full fellowship with God's people through salvation in Christ. This was the group that emphasized the boundaries God had erected to approach him in Israel. And God was moving, again, way faster than these gentlemen were willing to move. The gospel was going global, and they were not ready for this shift in approach. So Peter was fellowshipping with Gentile sinners, and this was to them unacceptable. At verse 4 now, Peter is going to defend Gentile evangelism. Verse 4, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. He'll go down and give that explanation. We'll go through that fairly quickly, but just one moment before we enter into it. It's interesting what he doesn't do. Peter does not say, he does not get defensive. Who do you think you are questioning me? I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ after all. I know what I'm doing. Why don't you trust me? He could have very easily turned it into a great debate, an argument, a war. They're disputing with him continually, but he does not go at it in that way. He understands, I think, ultimately, this is not about him. This is about what Jesus is doing. God is on the move, and it's not uncommon for God's people to have a problem with what God is doing. And so rather than getting defensive, Peter patiently explains what God has done. Arguing inductively, he leaves his premise for the conclusion. He leaves it for the end. He just lays out what God has done and then he draws his conclusion. He recounts, first of all, his vision at verse 4. "...began to explain to them in order, I was in the city, verse 5, of Joppa, saying, and in a trance I saw a vision." Praying, I should say. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from the heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, and reptiles and birds of the air. I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now, Peter identifies with the concerns of his critics here. He's explaining that to them. I was very resistant to what God was doing here. He's pushing back against God's desires. Verse 9, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened 3 times and all was drawn up again into heaven. At this point Peter recounts his visit to Cornelius verse 11 and behold at that very moment 3 men arrived at the house in which we were sent to in which we were sent to me from Caesarea and the spirit told me to go with them making no distinction These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, what have we learned here? Compared to the original account in chapter 10, Peter adds a few minor details. But Luke is writing here so as to repeat chapter 10. He's clearly doing this. It's a literary device in the Bible that is saying this is a matter of high importance. We're going to take up text. It's very costly to write the text that you're reading right now. And to repeat almost verbatim what has happened in chapter 10 is costly for Luke as an author. He's doing so for a reason. In the ancient world particularly, let me stop and say in our world, we say that's redundant. Don't do that. Don't waste my time. We're all about time. Money isn't the big issue when it comes to printing. You're wasting my time. You've already said that. But in this situation, somebody reading this text would say, that's very important. He's, he's spilling some ink here to say it again. Get the point here. This is what God is doing. Now one thing that's missing from this section is Cornelius' name. There's nothing said about his character as there is in chapter 10. Peter stresses this is not about Cornelius and who he is. This is about God and what he's doing. So Peter stresses that God is synchronizing the events surrounding these men. He's bringing them together. In verse 15, he continues, I began as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. I began to speak as a Semitic construction, not to be taken literally, because his speech is actually interrupted. It's not right precisely at the beginning of his speech. But he says, listen, here. this is what happened there in Caesarea. I was preaching a message of salvation in the name of our Messiah. And these Gentiles believed that message. And the Holy Spirit baptized them while I was still speaking. They began to speak in tongues. He fell on them just as He fell on us. Now, here's the key point. They did not become Jews first. They did not identify through circumcision with God's old covenant between himself and Israel. They just simply believed. How does Peter interpret these events? It's very interesting. Verse 16, he says, "...I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit." It's another time that he remembered that word, and that's certainly when he was baptized by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to take you here, if you'll run with me. Let's go on a string. I'm going to trace out a line for a little bit. The first is the preaching of John the Baptist. Uh, let's go back to Luke chapter 3 as we consider that message. Luke chapter 3. Remember what John the Baptist preached verse 15, Luke chapter 3, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, he puts that to rest real fast. Verse 16, when he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Let me put it to you that way, and you know I'm not the Christ. But he... Will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This Messiah, this Christ who is to come, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to Acts chapter 1. And we remember in the teaching of the resurrected yet unascended Christ. In Acts chapter 1, in verse 5, he says, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When we put John the Baptist's statement with Jesus' statement, it's clear what Jesus is saying. John prophesied, he baptized with water, one will come who is the Christ, I am that one, I am going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit as John prophesied. Chapter 2 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were seated, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is Jesus' baptism of the Spirit. As John prophesied, Jesus said, go into Jerusalem and wait. Here, he baptizes the believers with the Spirit of God. Let's go back to Acts 11. At verse 15 then, he says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So he links together in some measure This latter day has come. Indeed, as verses 16 and 17 of Acts 2 indicate, as prophesied by Joel, this latter day in some measure has come. The outpouring of the Spirit of God that Joel prophesied, that John the Baptist proclaimed, that Jesus would accomplish, it has come. We received that baptism. Acts 2, Pentecost. They have received the same thing. They've had the same experience. Here's his conclusion, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't think he's talking about the moment they trusted Christ as Savior, but the whole package, the same gift we received at Pentecost, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He gave to them the same gift that we received at Pentecost in fulfillment of the prophecy that John the Baptist had made, indeed, that Joel had made. Now, gentlemen, at this point, I had two options. I could stand on the tracks in front of the speeding locomotive and try to stand in God's way, or I could step off to the side and get on the train and move forward with him. I had no other option. They were baptized in the Spirit. They responded to the message of Christ They hadn't become Jews. And so I baptized them, and I got with God's program. The new age had dawned with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That gift was passed on directly to the Gentiles, apart from entrance into the covenant family of Israel. We read at verse 18 the response to his report. When they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. When they heard these things, they fell silent. It was a silence that reverberated with significance. A silence that trumpeted a new day. You can see them sitting there dumbfounded, their wheels turning, the wheels of their minds spinning rapidly as they try to grasp what is happening here. And then their silence gives way to praise. From silence, they glorified God. Several observations as we consider this verse. First, when a sinner saved by grace hears that God has saved another sinner by grace, the only real legitimate response is joy, it's thanksgiving, it's praise. If you hear that someone has come to trust Christ as Savior, and there's evidence that they have come to trust Christ as Savior, and you are dull of heart, or even jealous, there's something seriously wrong. When God reaches a sinner, He puts joy in our heart whenever we hear that He's doing it again. That His mission is continuing forward. Grace has conquered sin God has done it again. Forgiveness has been granted. That should inspire our worship as we come together on the Lord's Day. We sing as Gentiles because God's work of redemption continues forward. Second observation, repentance unto salvation is a gift of God. Peter never even mentions Cornelius' name here, does he? He doesn't praise him by any means. That Cornelius was so good that God saw that he merited salvation and gave it to him. Or that Cornelius was really a really sharp guy. And as I came and delivered the message to him, he really picked it up quickly and he responded in faith. He's not praising Cornelius here, is he? They are not praising Cornelius. When they heard these things, they fell silent, glorifying God, saying, notice what they said, Then, to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance. The Bible always puts the initiative for salvation with God. Third observation linked directly to this second, that the initiative is always with God. This baptism of the Spirit, accompanied by speaking in tongues, is not viewed as a second work of grace that comes after salvation. It's referred to as repentance that leads to life. That is to conversion, a conversion that God grants. Observation 4, we should not get the impression that everyone went home with glad hearts, all struggles resolved, and that the mission to the Gentiles moved on without a hitch. This isn't the case. Acts 15, there's going to be rigorous debate within the church about what is right. The whole book of Galatians really revolves around a group rising up such as this or maybe some of these very same people who were zealous for the Old Covenant but missed the whole point of Christ's fulfillment. Fifth observation, this is a beautiful passage. Verse 18 is a beautiful verse. You see people coming with resistance toward God and finally backing off and saying, let God have His way. I submit to His purposes what struggle there is in sin. We hold on to it. We don't want to let it go. We keep our sin between us and God. and praise God for that work of grace that He works in a heart when he leads us to see that his will is different than mine, and I convert to his will. That's what they do here. It's not perfect, point four. There's a lot more work to be done, but they submit. Praise God. The evangelization of the Gentiles is started in this dramatic fashion. But I think the whole point of the remainder of the chapter is to connect to this dramatic evidence of God working among the Gentiles, and putting with it an area of very subtle, quiet influence. The Spirit of God is orchestrating the connection between Peter and Cornelius. No one can argue that point. But the Spirit of God is also working quietly in far-off places to continue the same idea. And so we find in the remainder of the chapter, the church at Antioch venturing into Gentile evangelism. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Takes us back to 8.1, the persecution that comes from Stephen. Sends people out throughout Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And you see on the map here the Phoenician coast. The word is traveling upward. Remember, Philip goes up up to Caesarea. And from that point, it's going northward. People are hearing the word of God. But as you see at the end of verse 19, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Apparently, the idea is still there. We're going to go to all nations and find the Jews that are there and proclaim the gospel to them. And as other people become Jews, we can proclaim the gospel to them. And maybe God occasionally does something unique such as with Cornelius at Caesarea, but they're speaking only to the Jews. And this might go back in time just a bit, too, before chapter 10. We're not sure, but the message of Jesus continues to reverberate outward from Jerusalem. That is the key to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, this island west of Antioch, and to Antioch. Let's think of this city for a bit. It would be wise for us to take about 30 minutes to talk just about what Antioch was. We won't do that. But Antioch, southwest Turkey today, was a large, prominent, cosmopolitan melting pot. It was a proud Gentile city, known for its sophistication, its wealth, its rampant depravity, its hedonism. But this worldly city would become the beachhead from which the gospel of Jesus Christ would go global. As you see Antioch here on the map, it serves as a hinge pin and swings the gospel westward across what is now Turkey and further. Antioch would become ground zero for the evangelization of the world. But yet at this point, people are speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, quietly, subtly, with no fanfare, verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. There is some debate as to what Hellenists mean. Are these Greek-speaking Jews... I think there's good reason, I won't go into it, why we should take it to be Gentiles. I think it refers to Gentiles, and there's good support for that. But these unnamed, unsung pioneers of the faith take a daring risk here and begin proclaiming the Gospel to Gentiles. Everyone's preaching only to Jews, but they, for some reason, step over that line. And they proclaim Jesus to Gentiles. What would others think? Well, all that matters is really that God blesses their initiative, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Well, news of that's going to again reach Jerusalem. And I don't know that this is the case, but it almost seems like the church of Jerusalem is running out of apostles. And so they find who, who's the best, next best person to go, to go up there and check it out and see what's going on in Antioch. We hear that there's people preaching directly to Gentiles. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. We've met him before. This is the man that sold the field, that brought the proceeds to the church to help people in need. This Hellenistic Jew from, indeed, Cyprus. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. So he goes all the way up there to Antioch and sees the grace of God. He was glad. Why? He's a true believer. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He didn't exhort them to receive circumcision and for their families to identify with the old covenant. He rejoices. He takes them as they are as Gentiles and says, persevere in the faith. Remain true to the Lord. That's his message. He was not one of the twelve, but he was entrusted with this message and he delivered well. As he preaches this word of encouragement. The church responds. People are being saved in great numbers. The church doesn't get boiled down into this debate as to whether or not the gospel should be proclaimed to Gentiles. Barnabas is wise enough, gracious enough to say, God is working here. Let's keep going, people. Let's keep going. And they do. The great church forms here, so much so that he says, I, I need help. Barnabas is just saying, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the work. Maybe we don't know. I'm reading into the text here, certainly, but maybe he just feels even it's over his head to teach all these people and to teach them the way that he should. Then in a stroke of genius, if we want to talk of it from a purely human standpoint, he thinks of Saul Tarsus. he's kind of up in this region. Maybe he'll help me. Let's go back to 9.15 to know that it wasn't really a stroke of purely human genius. 9.15, when Saul of Tarsus was converted, the prophecy was given by divine word, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Well, we've got Gentiles and children of Israel here in Antioch, and they need the word. We've got Gentiles here. This was a prophecy about Saul of Tarsus, that he would be a minister to the Gentiles. i got a lot of them here. Maybe I should go get Saul. Verse 27 of chapter 9. Remember, Barnabas takes Saul down to Jerusalem after his conversion. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He knows Saul's history. And he certainly knows this prophecy. Antioch, Tarsus, he's up in this region, I'm going to go find him. So what does he do? He sits down and he goes to Facebook, right? And he says, where on earth is Saul of Tarsus? I'll find him pretty quickly here. I got him on my cell phone, I'll dial him up. In this day, you go and try to find the guy. You've got no communication such as this. No one, and it's interesting, nobody knows really where Saul is. We know that from the word that is used. He went to Tarsus, verse 25. Did I ever read verse 24? I don't think I did. Let me go back to it. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This Greek word that's used means that he looked up and down. He searched all around trying to find him, which is an amazing story all in itself. How could this brilliant theologian, this man with such a heart for God, this dramatic conversion, be up in Tarsus where nobody really knows where he is or what he's doing? He looks all over for him. Search is made and he finds him. And he brings him to Antioch, verse 26, And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Saul and Barnabas form a tremendous team, God uniquely blesses it. Here is Saul, this premier theologian who's now been schooled by Christ and has had time to work out his theology. We don't really know all that took place there in Tarsus, but undoubtedly God is preparing him. And here is Barnabas, this Christ-like encourager, as verse 24 indicates. And Gentiles are being saved, verse 24 A solid, vibrant church is formed. Evangelism, edification, indoctrination, encouragement mark the church. And they're called Christians. First here. Undoubtedly by non-Jewish people who probably wouldn't be calling them after their Messiah. It's probably by the Gentile populace. But what does that indicate? These people have made enough of a splash that they receive a name. These Gentile pagans, no, these are Christians. They follow Christ, the Jewish Messiah. This is also a scary word. It might be a derogatory phrase. We don't really know ultimately, but it is a frightening thing. The Christians in this cosmopolitan city have freedom to pursue Christ. They have freedom under Rome to, as long as they're identified with the Jews, because the Jews was a long-standing religion and Rome basically accepted it. But now, they're being distinguished as their own group, and this will lead to persecution directly. But here they are, identified as the followers of Christ. Christ's people. Now there follows then, in verses 27-30, through 30, a section that might be seen just be really kind of strange and oddly placed here at this point, but I don't think it is. I think it's here for very good reason. We read at verse 27, that in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, who reigned 41-54 to A.D., This prophet comes receiving a revelation from God that there's going to be great economic crisis. There's going to be a recession slash depression. Whatever it is, it's going to be hard times that are going to come upon the whole world, an idiom for the Roman Empire. And indeed, as we look to history and historical records, there were intermittent seasons of famine during Claudius' reign. It was one of the great problems of his reign. Now what's happening here? There is this message that there will be this famine. It's difficult to make a living in Jerusalem when times are good. Now it's going to become very difficult. Verse 29, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Probably the occasion of Acts chapter 15. But the significance is what? Do we see this? A largely Gentile church is sending financial aid to the struggling believers in Jerusalem where it was notoriously difficult to make a living. They are reaching across geographic boundaries and ethnic boundaries. There's a lot of people in need between Antioch and Jerusalem. But reaching across this geographic divide, they take the money all the way down there to where the church started. What they are saying with this gift is that these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are our people. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I'll tell you, there's only one answer for this unprecedented act of compassion, and that is reason is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. There's no other answer. These Gentiles are aiding Jews to start with. They live in a culture, these Jews, that would look at these very Gentiles as dogs and scum. Some of even the Christian Jews are still holding these Gentile believers at arm's length saying they're not quite right with God yet. They're really not to be welcomed in yet at this point as full standing citizens in Christ. And these people take of their means and send money down to bless Jewish Christians. There are people now. For these Gentile believers, what mattered was that God had accepted them. They weren't really concerned whether the Jews did or not. But where there was a bond in Christ, there were their people. Jew and Gentile now together in Jesus. Remember, Paul saw of Tarsus when he was converted identified and met with the believers in Damascus. He went down to Jerusalem to identify and to meet with those believers. This wasn't social connection. This was a new family of God that was formed. And he identified with those people that were part of his family. And so these here, they're saying, we will help. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. What motivates them? It's Jesus. Though rich, he became poor. Through his poverty, we might be rich. They are simply reflecting the nature of the Lord who saved them and bound their hearts to these brothers and sisters. Take our wealth. Be blessed. Be encouraged. Jesus had given the mission, make disciples of all nations. Jewish believers seem to have Conceive this mission as a call to just evangelize the Jews. But God is moving way ahead of them. We have Peter and Cornelius. We have this dramatic divine orchestration, this statement of God's fresh program to reach all peoples. And now we have this subtle venturing out by people unknown to reach Gentiles in Antioch. The gospel has gone global. And there was nothing now to stop it. As I mentioned, Acts 15, Gentile conversion will remain a major concern in the church. But look at where we are today. Are we at Acts 15? To my knowledge, there is no group anywhere that is arguing that Gentiles must become Jews in order to become Christians. This matter is long dead. It is so clear that Christ is working His saving power throughout this world. And the reason for all of this is the glory and the power of that gospel. Jesus fulfills that old covenant. There is no need any longer to come through these concentric walls to enter the presence of God. Now, through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we can enter directly into the presence of God as a priesthood of believers. He has fulfilled the old covenant. He is, in one sense, the new temple where we meet with God And that repentance that God grants that leads to life referred to in verse 18 is a message for all peoples. We don't need to discriminate. We take it. Indeed, we shouldn't. And and it leads to the question, as we close this morning, have you embraced this message leading to life? If you think not, if you do not rejoice when others turn to Christ, if you do not really see what it means, and understand it intuitively. Maybe you hold on to sin, are unwilling to let it go in repentance. There's a man I spoke to this week who's lost his life in virtually every respect, but he talked about the way that sin had a grip on his soul and he couldn't let go, knowing it was killing him. What you need And I would say in light of 11.18 is to pray that God would grant you repentance. To set things up properly there. Not, Jesus, tell me what you have and I'll see if it works for me. But rather to go to him in prayer and to plead with him to grant you repentance that leads to life. You are in desperate need. And you can never deliver yourself from your own sin. Only Christ can set us free. Only Christ. Ask Him. Pray to Him. Plead with God to grant you repentance. Don't ever look to God as the one who's at fault. But ask Him to give what He alone can mercifully give. And receive Christ crucified and risen as your Savior if you have responded to that message, we should leave here rejoicing. This is grace and grace alone that brings us to this transforming message and permits us to be transformed by it. Jesus has died for me. The Gospel of Christ has gone global. It has reached to us here in this far reach of the earth, so far from Jerusalem. We now are part of a global fraternity, a family of God. And indeed, we say sometimes, don't we, that there are times like such as here where God is moving faster than we want Him to move. And there are times such as in our setting here, so far removed from Jerusalem, and here in a nation that is turning rapidly away from the gospel where we ask, why does God move so slowly? Why are there not more who respond in faith to the gospel? Certainly part of the fault lies with us. We need to open our mouths and to proclaim the truth. But it's cold here. Colder some places, more cold some places than here, but it's cold here. People don't respond in droves. God is moving slowly, but let's plead with the one who can grant forgiveness. Let's plead with the one who grants repentance unto salvation, and let's continue to proclaim this gospel as a fraternity, as a family of God to anyone, anywhere, by the grace and power of God in Christ. Let's bow and pray in His name. We long for the day when Christ reigns over every nation on earth. Indeed, in one sense He does, our Father. But we pray for that day when He will come to earth, when He will set up that rule, when every nation will bow, knowledgeably. God, I pray now that You would help us to be about the business of the Gospel, and that we might all rejoice in the salvation that's in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.